Welcome and happy Friday. This is Travelog, the podcast of Condé Nast Traveler. I am back. I want to yeah. first start. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I guess yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll yeah, be yeah, in yeah, one yeah. going. Boo, <laughs> yay, whatever. First things first, shout out to Meredith Carey for hosting for the last two weeks. I just wanted to let Meredith know she's not here today. She's upstairs working real hard. <laughs> but I wanted to say I just got back from my water. It was the Mediterranean. I am a convert to the Mediterranean. I grew up with the Atlantic, but now I'm a Mediterranean person. And I uh, just spent a lot of time in my water. And we did have a bunch of tweets coming in of folks telling us what their water is. So that was a pretty cool little thing that happened. And it was great to hear from people on that. So thanks, Meredith. You guys will be hearing more from Meredith in the future, I am sure, on the show and otherwise. I'm here right now in the studio with Barbara Peterson, who covers the airline industry for Traveler, Mark Elwood, who's a contributing editor and a podcast producer for Hello. Traveler. Mark, you've been gone for a while, too. I have. You? We went on vacation together. <laughs> we, just, we just missed each other. <laughs> I have a feeling my vacation, my vacation was pretty good, but I have a feeling it would always be better if I were with you. Oh, that's so brilliant. That's so nice. Mark. You can come with me next time. Catherine Legrave and Aaron Florio are here as well. They are editors for Traveler. And our topic this week is happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to Traveler. That's right. Um, 30 years. 30 years. We are 30 years old. We're celebrating our 30th anniversary this month. You should pick up a copy of the magazine. It's on newsstands right now as we speak. We took a really nice deep look both in the magazine and online in the last couple of weeks on how travel has changed in the last 30 years because it has been a really busy a really a tumultuous period of time for the world and for Traveler generally. So when we were talking just briefly before the show, we're trying to identify a bunch of different currents. And I know, Aaron, you guys talked a lot about this in putting the magazine together. What, if you stand back like 40,000 feet, what are the kind of big things that you see in the industry and the way that people travel and the way the world has shaped in terms of how travel has changed? The biggest thing would be the sort of expansion and the proliferation of all the different airlines that have emerged and the new routes, the way that the world has really opened up. I think that has kind of been a harbinger for everything that we do in terms of the culture of travel. It makes it easier to get places, which makes it more realistic to take what we would have deemed as a long haul journey in three or four days. That's something that we actually go deep on in, in the package if you read the package that we have in book. It also makes it more of a consumer friendly vice, which is beneficial for everybody. I mean, it makes it cheaper. It makes going places something that you'll do, you know, 20 times in the year. You might go on, you know, 15 to 20 trips during the year, whereas 30 years ago, you might have had that one big trip. And so it's sort of like reimagined that whole access. It's sort of changed everything. I think your point about consumer friendly is really well made because I would argue there is no other industry that the internet has democratized to the level of travel. The ability to book your own trips, book your own flights, do your own research, it has been monumental. I remember sitting, when I first got to New York in the 90s, with a copy of the New York Times on Sunday afternoon, going through the classifieds, ringing around to check for the cheapest flights. And <laughs> How old are you? <laughs> How old do I question. That's Goodness not me. We're not allowed to ask that question. Wow. Again, please, listeners, just you can tweet and say, hold oh, it'll just Google me. But um, <laughs> be nice. But I'm saying, I think your point about it being consumer friendly, I think that's a really interesting. Travel has migrated from being an elite pastime or a once in a while pastime to something in the best possible way that in some form is accessible to almost everybody. The airline business, airlines, planes are a great place to start, right? Because along the lines of what Aaron was saying, this is how we make the world smaller. This is how we make the world accessible, right? 
let's take a moment to talk about how air travel has changed in the last 30 years. What are some of the highlights there? Barbara? Okay. That's your cue, Barbara. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think the seismic shift really was right before the 80s was, you know, Congress passed the Deregulation Act and that unleashed this incredible entrepreneurial spirit and plus a lot of money from a lot of bankers who apparently thought this was going to be the next big thing. And so more than 100 airlines were started in the decade between the end of the 70s and the end of the 80s. And of course, nearly all of them failed ultimately. But, <laughs> but people had a great time while it lasted. And, and I think the legacy of that is it still is incredibly affordable when you think about it. I mean, even people complain about it. They complain about fees and all that other nonsense. But it still is amazing that you can travel anywhere in the world and you can afford to do it. And you can and, but also, like those, mm. then maybe the majority of them failed, but they were sort of the precursors to the ones that are really strong and stalwarts these days, like your Norwegians, which bring mm -hmm. you know intercontinental travel to a much more economically friendly budget. Uh, you know, obviously the Ryanairs and the EasyJets that have made that have kind of replaced like the train travel of Europe, essentially, like you sort of plane hop from place to place. So, I mean, I guess their legacy is still sort of existent and well, kind of redefining exactly. how we travel now. In a way, they've done it more successfully than what happened in the United but States. But Barbara, and like, I don't want to leave these too quickly because mm. you wrote about these for us today and some of these are kind of fun. The 80s were a very fertile period of time for people being creative and trying some crazy stuff. Talk about some of those airlines that spun up in the 80s. Which well, ones do you wish you could have flown? Go yeah. on. Well, yeah. Great the, Smokers Club so, or what was that? No, there, there were some really wacky ones. It's almost like if you had an idea or an angle or a gimmick you know, the airlines were very attractive to people because, first of all, it's instant fame, right? You start an airline and you immediately get a lot of attention. So that attracted, well, let's put it this way, the usual suspects, um, the including some seeking. billionaires that, were, well, at least one is still with us. Um, so, but I'll start first with the one that I thought was the best. I never flew it, of course, but I would have loved to. It's called MGM Grand Air. It was an all-first-class Mark, Mark is a Las Vegas guy, so he's... <laughs> Could you gamble in the air? Were there, like, little fruit machines that you can, like... And not taxed, because you were in... You're in, yeah. You're like Mark starting another airline, MGM <laughs> well, Grand actually, too. that's a brilliant idea. You should definitely get somebody to back you on that. But apparently everything else went on in that airline. That, that you, what that happens in MGM Grand stays in MGM Grand. <laughs> so Kirk Corian, who was you know, a famous guy, you know, billionaire, and he just said, you know, again, it was just, I've done everything else. I've made my money. Why not start an airline? And he got a couple of old planes. He ripped out the interiors, put in some fancy swivel chairs, double beds in these little little notorious, the very notorious private cabins and uh, <laughs> flying part, brothels. You would, say that they changed you, the you, sheets. You, nothing about <laughs> Thanks for ruining the, housekeeping. the vibe. <laughs> Gotta have good housekeeping on MGM. No, the flight attendants all looked like Las Vegas showgirls. They all wore tuxedos, strangely. Uh, but anyway, that's, you know, <laughs> the caviar and champagne. Uh, With uh, pants? You know, you know, so it was like they deregulated you know. in like 1979. And by 1981, it was like brothels in the air. So it was like a no-bridge. <laughs> And so there the, were like 34 seats, right? Yeah, exactly. 34 seats. And the round trip fare was 2000 which actually... That sounds great. No, yeah, what? That round sounds, trip from New York to Vegas or... Uh, to L.A. It was to just, L.A. Yeah, it was... They, so it was they, transcom. So it was like MGM yeah, yeah. Studios or was it actually like the Vegas? Like, yeah, but I think okay. at that point they were connected. The whole, you know... The yeah, Kokorian was a casino developer, right? Right. 
But he also had the Hollywood angle, too. So then, of course, the other person who decided to put his name and moniker and image on an airline was, of course, our current president and the Trump shuttle. That was another great 80s story because he was buying up trophy properties all over the place, the plaza. And, no. you know, and, and, and so he thought, no. and so here I could buy an airline. And I remember when I was doing my research into the story I did for the site that he just thought it was a toy. You know, it was his latest bauble, you know, and in fact, he referred to it as a diamond. But then he got a little closer look at some of the planes and they were more like, you know, uh, rhinestones. I mean, they were they were really <laughs> falling apart. And he said, oh, no, what am I going to So he, he did a lot of crazy things. He tried to put marble sinks in the labs, which would have made the plane. Nice. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think he... a little extra gas. No, I hope nobody's <laughs> listening to <laughs> No, I hope I'm not going to start getting some tweets at you know six a.m. But the guy all did tweets not... are good tweets, Barbara. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. Okay, he clearly did not understand the business that he had gotten. But you into. flew Trump. And, you flew Trump shuttle. Yeah, I did. Wrote at the, an article I, for us about at the that. very end of the era. I mean, it was literally on its last legs. But I got in one flight on it. And with, were there marble sinks? <laughs> well, at that point, they were marble. fake marble. And did every <laughs> flight begin with a welcoming message from <laughs> Donald Trump <laughs> that came down? <laughs> That's what I'm imagining. See, I, think, do the like, I, I think the point you're making, Barbara, is, very, is well made because we forget that loyalty programs, which are designed to ring fences with our preferred airline, as a, the choice of it diminishes, in the early 80s, there were no such things. It was being trialed a little in the regional ways, and eventually American made advantage a kind of household name, and slowly they became ways of retaining customers. But back then, it was this showmanship. It was, why don't you try MGM Grand Air? Because you might as well. There wasn't a sense of, oh, I better stick with American because I'm racking up my points. It was, how do I have a fun flight? I hope there are clean sheets. There was, <laughs> there was still a little bit of the glamour. That Absolutely. had existed in the 50s, 60s, and early My 70s. favorite quote, and I'm just going to get a plug-in for my book, Bargain Fever, available wherever books are sold. Um, <laughs> when I looked at deregulation, my favorite quote was American Airlines then-CEO Robert Crandall sat in front of a Senate committee debating whether airline prices should be unfettered and deregulated and competition could be brought in. And he said to the Senate committee, and I quote, you fucking academic eggheads, you don't know shit. You can't deregulate this industry. You're going to wreck it. You don't know a goddamn thing. And that... <laughs> Robert in, Crandall said that? Yep. In public in the 1970s. That's amazing. He did not want them to deregulate? No, it's weird, isn't it? He yes. Kind of, he strikes me as like the... Bob Champion. Crandall, the, the United CEO, Richard Ferris at the time, wasn't worried. He welcomed it. But I think Bob Crandall, because, of course, originally the way airlines differentiated themselves wasn't on price because price was set by the government. Yeah. It was on how hot are your stewardesses, yeah. how big are your martinis. And the 80s were when price started you say becoming. those like they're bad things, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> big martinis are good no there was an amazing there was i think i've talked about this before at one point the government regulated how many drinks could be served on a flight you could only have two martinis so the airlines responded by making pint-sized martini glasses <laughs> i think you have talked about that i apologize if i repeat myself but it is one of my favorite stories <laughs> since the 80s Lots of other things have happened within the industry. And so just staying on the industry for just a second, let's talk about the 90s a little bit and some of the things that happened during the 90s. 
Smoking is banned on cross-country yeah. flights. I do, I, to me, to me, I, yeah, smoking is a big one, right? I think smoking. I think it's easy. When I was a kid, and I wrote about this in the piece that I wrote about flying then and now, where my pieces sort of bookend each other, mm-hmm. right. but hers is a lot better. Um, the <laughs> I, I remember as a child, my parents are virulently anti-smoking, which for that generation was quite unusual. And my mother would kind of ship us to the airport four or five hours before our flight because you couldn't pre-reserve a seat and she wouldn't sit anywhere but the first two rows of economy because otherwise you were just in smoking adjacent, not non-smoking. And I just remember the interminable hours spent at Heathrow and Gatwick to prevent us having to fly and end up smelling of smoke. And the flight attendants I spoke to said... You know, you'd get home and put your uniform on the fire escape because it always was so smoky. And on international routes, if it got too smoky, you would page the pilot and say, please put the new smoking sign on for 20 minutes or so because we can't see where we're going. I like the anecdote you had in your story, too, where you said that or you basically say, of course, there are smoking sections and non-smoking sections, but it's really a technical designation because... I mean, every it's not contained in any way. I right? heard, and I'm sure this is not true, but I'm going to share it anyway. And Barbara and Mark, maybe you can weigh in. I heard, and I will tell you my source on this. My source on this is the actor Sam Neill. He told this to me that actually when you could smoke on a flight, the air quality of the airplane was better than it is today because they took greater measures to cleanse the air more regularly. And now they've let that lapse a little so, bit. I mean, I'm skeptical. I love that. No, but here's, but I, I love don't that. Know and that's, that's true what or we not. love our listeners for please if there's someone who works for an airline who can tell us about that or an engineer who's worked on plane engineering we would love to know is that true? Because in some ways that makes sense. If there was more to purify they've made it a priority. They made air purity more of a priority. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if but it's the true. the systems I, I, are more advanced now, so you would think. But I mean, I don't. I just don't know at what level is keeping up with what other level. I'm not. Yeah, I. Yeah. It instinctively doesn't make sense to me, but I'd be curious to explore that. Uh, I did a story actually for the magazine, <laughs> so, yeah, about that precise thing. It's uh, not about the smoking. That's a very I, that's the first time I've ever heard that. That's very interesting. Okay, let's let's uh, say that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's put it this way: it's a great, you know, it's an urban legend. Let's put it. Yeah, I don't know. No, it, it really is a serious topic, and the issue is disease. And I think what happened is that after the scares of the SARS, the SARS yeah. epidemic, and there oh, some yeah. other ones, that airlines became very, you, you know. I mean, it's not totally up to them, by the way, because it's very tightly regulated by the governments. But they became really on that again because people were starting to be afraid to fly because they thought, okay, if someone's sitting back in that row and am I going to be getting their germs coming down to me? So there's this whole technical thing, which I won't bore everybody with now because it has to do with how often the air inside is refreshed and it goes through the engine. Sounds like a a separate podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) we'll follow an air particle through the the ventilation system. Flying for germaphobes would actually be an interesting series of Flying for germaphobes. But you're absolutely right. It's a very important topic because it has to do with your health and also our being being confined in an aircraft for all this time. And, you know, who do you know? uh, Do you know who you're sitting next to? Well, you see this manifest itself these days in the food allergy thing Mm -hmm. that they do where if there's somebody on the plane who has a nut allergy they will not serve nuts on the plane also when i was a child they always handed out a packet of nuts with the drink and now it's always a packet of pretzels and i'm sure that's been changed as a result of not taking the risk of there being a nut allergy on the plane right yeah now what about all the gluten intolerant people oh gosh we're not gonna get there next anything (laughs) no No more pretzels people (laughs) but we were talking before we started about tickets being sold online and I think that's a really interesting thing another thing that's mentioned in the magazine you know tickets being sold 
online and Mark and Barbara, you guys talk about that in your piece and just remembering you, that I can date go, it. I mean, okay. I know. Okay. All right. Going Do you know to, when? Wait, 95? The first the one? First? No, 95. Yeah, 95. Oh, 95. Who was the first airline? It's kind of Alaska. interesting. Alaska. Yeah. Well done. Oh, Mark, you've got... Mark knows. Mark will take me to trivia any day. Exactly. <laughs> Mark, if you, you want to win Trivial Pursuit, just volunteer to have Catherine on your team. That pie shot will fill up faster than you can say all aboard. No, but I mean, we talked about like having to have a paper ticket that no. was mailed to you and stuff I like that. I remember how exciting it was the day your paper tickets arrived in the mailbox. You remember that and opening up and there was always like the three or four different layers. <laughs> yes. I feel I, this really makes me feel old, but yeah. I but wait, no, that. actually wait. Okay, so there's two dates here. The first is 1994, the first e-ticket, which mm -hmm. is issued by... Southwest. Yes. Sorry, I should Catherine again. Won, Catherine again. Right you didn't formulate it as a question, Catherine. Okay, right. Sorry, sorry. What is Southwest? Excellent. Well done. And then in 1995, the big sort of sea change is Alaska being the first carrier to sell tickets online. I think it's always interesting to try to put yourselves back in your shoes then. That seems like an obvious thing to do now. In 1995, I got my first email address, and it seemed pointless because so few other people had them. Mm -hmm. What were you going to email? Hello, you have one too. You know, mm -hmm. we, we aren't we ahead? So if you think about Alaska doing it then, it led the way in such a well, clever... Well, they did it before they had... Well, maybe this is where you're going with this, but like they did it before they actually had like they were actually reaching the masses by doing so. But it meant that they had proprietariness over that type of consumer marketing or right. reachability. And most people booked tickets through travel agents back then. So, sure. so and that was the best way to do it. Or directly to go to a city ticket office or something. But you're right. But the interesting thing about those first online bookings was that you could still get a paper ticket. For a while, you could do both. And I don't know if any of you had the experience of losing your paper ticket. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I remember one time I had two kids with me. We were going to the airport, and it had gotten mixed up with the laundry. Which um, and, oh, and oh, so no. you didn't lose it. You mangled it. It was, it <laughs> was game over. It. But I didn't know it was in the laundry. We were about to miss the flight, and finally I freaked out. And I called the travel agent and booked it. I said, I'll just go to the airport. You know, I've already got my seat assignments. They know who I am. I'll, oh, no, you can't do that. So then I began to say, you know what? Just get this whole thing over with. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you don't have to worry about losing your paper ticket? And a lot of people did that back then. And um, you know, But it so, does. I, I, I think Aaron's point about the ritual of travel, that changing, it's the flip side of that wonderful democratization. It's the same thing as when your photographs used to come back in the mail and you would have that aha moment of, oh, wow, that was a great picture versus, oh, I'll take that again. I don't like how I look. Well, it's the anticipation that we, that actually is is the, some of the best part, right? Yeah. And we sort of removed that from That moment everything. when you think, oh, when it's will the exciting. tickets come? Yeah. It's exciting. So, you know, there's a price we pay for how wonderfully accessible it is, and it's that ta-da moment isn't there anymore. What else about the experience of flying has changed? Oh. Not so much the industry itself, you know, which we can talk more about too, I guess, but what about the experience? Well, I definitely remember there was one movie and you either caught it or you didn't. Yeah. Uh, and now we have screens yeah. and we're lazy and it's like, you know, yeah. cable TV. Who started in plane? IFE? Like, do you remember who was the first uh, seat back entertainment company? Which airline um, it was? Oh my goodness, I am Can, wildly. I read your story, so I'm going to repeat uh, myself. <laughs> Quiet, Catherine. Okay, sorry. You're like that kid at the front of the class. You're like, me, me. Yeah. All right, I'm quiet. Wildly guessing, I'm going to say Singapore. Wildly guessing. What was it, Catherine? Virgin Atlantic. Okay, I, I can. That makes a lot of sense, actually, doesn't it, with Richard Branson? Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the first seat back. Yes, it was. Uh, 
like virgin, those little two and a half virgin's inch things differentiator was, when it launched mm. was seat back entertainment rather than a screen a screen so yeah. it wasn't on demand it wasn't touch screen but you got better quality and you had several channels to pick from slowly it migrated to on demand then it migrated to touch screen but virgin said we are the fun airline because we're full of entertainment and if you look at some of the great airlines that have come since that sort of fun moment like JetBlue's fun I mean you know Barbara you're the JetBlue person the JetBlue's funness well it was that it was live TV and well that, they have cable yeah. on JetBlue yeah. that's yeah. why like I used to say when I was at university and in my early 20s and I didn't have cable and I used to say my holiday began when I got onto that JetBlue flight <laughs> because I loved being able to watch cable which is probably the biggest endorsement you can give an airline right <laughs> but that yeah, was but JetBlue when JetBlue when JetBlue marketed itself as having live TV that was a huge point of difference at the time right Oh absolutely they signed that deal even before they started their first flight so they were on that and they realized what a differentiator it was because the first few planes they had out there only one of them had the live TV the other didn't so they could tell by the faces of the people when they got off the plane which one had the live TV Oh yeah really it, It's uh, yeah the old video babysitter I mean, you know, the flight attendants <laughs> love that plane because, you know, they didn't get all these people with their call buttons. Where's my drink? I mean, it was amazing the difference it made. Oh, I'm trying to remember the, the one screen that popped on. Oof, oh, I don't I, miss that. I but remember the, the, that the, so clearly. What was better was the airport experience. I think when you could have friends and family just come to your gates. I moved to America in the late, in the mid-90s initially, and I was startled by not only could you go to the gate if you weren't on the plane, because right. in Europe, you had to have a ticket, you had to... But also how kind of nondescript the airports were because there wasn't wait time, there was no need to entertain people. Therefore, sure, there were cafes and there was you could buy a newspaper. But even Heathrow and Gatwick when I was growing up, they had great shops because you needed to fill the time. And American US-based airports, I think, have slowly caught back up and there are some great airports. There's, you know, wine bars and some great things. Not as good as Asia's most entertaining airports with their butterfly houses, but still, I mean, no, That's I'm getting, like, I'm getting no, very, no. I'm getting no, polite looks around the around like, the table. People that can walk you to your gate and hang out with your friends and show up 20 minutes before. Mark says no, or do you prefer to have better shopping and dining experiences? Those of us who are a little bit older, do you guys remember what the security experience was like? In, you know, let's oh, say yeah. the early 90s, the late 80s, early 90s. Perfunctory. Yeah. Compared to Europe, because Lockerbie changed Heathrow's security measures. And when I first started... And when was Lockerbie again? 87. Like 88. 88. Yes. Oh, I thought it was 88. 88. Yeah, it was 88. December of 88. Remember, right Europe. before Christmas. Yeah. It, was, it was a pivotal moment for the UK. And I remember my first trip to America was four years after that. And the startling difference between how really thorough Heathrow's security was and how in a wonderfully innocent way US airports were a bit like sure you seem fine but isn't that because <laughs> airlines controlled it well Barbara? there are several reasons yeah one is that yeah until 9-11 actually the airlines were in charge of security 
and they hired the people who did it, and they were mainly contractors, and they earned minimum wage. I mean, basically, but the big threat was considered hijacking, and that had been a threat since the 1960s, really, with the Cuban, you know, mm -hmm. take me to Cuba, you know, that was a punchline. <laughs> um, and so that's when they first introduced the metal detectors. But, you know, basically you could walk through a metal detector with your shoes on, you know, and we didn't have laptops then, of course, but, you know, you didn't have to take off your jacket. There was none of this kabuki security the, drill. But the hijacking, yeah. I was speaking to a veteran pilot, John Cox, for these pieces, and, and he said the same thing. He said, remember, the threat to planes that we forget was hijacking. And I remember in my childhood there were hijacked planes, and they weren't always hijacks that ended in death. They were scary, horrible things, but they weren't trying to kill people. But it was a very different anxiety around flying. Mm -hmm. No, in fact, they usually had an end game. The end game was that, okay, you know, you know, we'll land somewhere, you'll give us a lot of money, yeah. and we'll free everybody. They it never, was like the know. modern day equivalent of the great train robbery, essentially, right? right? Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. It was kidnapping at scale. But it, and also, let's remember... They must when, have gotten a lot of those MGM Grand uh, private... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, can, you can hijack just one. No, but when you, let's remember, when we think about changes in terms of threats or anxiety, planes are so much safer today. Flying is significantly safer than it has ever been. There are still accidents, yes. But 30 years ago, the number of accidents each year was significantly higher than it is now, significantly. And they have improved technology on the planes, technology at the airports, and I think it's worth taking a moment to realize that they have made efforts towards that. I do remember there being this anxiety about flying that had to do with just, will the plane crash? And I feel like we haven't seen those kinds of things at, at that same profile level in the last you know, 15 years or so. I was going to say there was the Northwest Airlines Flight 255 that crashed in Detroit, and everyone except a four-year-old girl on board died. And that kind of accident in America is now mercifully quite rare, and yeah. long may it stay that way. Right. I remember the DC-9 or DC-10 that crashed in... Uh, right, out of, yeah. Out of uh, Dulles, or where was it? it was Chicago. Chicago, That was the American, okay. yeah, there's the DC-10, and they grounded all the DC-10s yeah, after that. that. That was the late 70s, I think. Yeah, so, probably. But you're right, during the 80s, you know, and, and then there was TWA 800, which was actually even later than the 80s, you know. But even as recently as that, there were still major crashes. And again, and they, it, well, let's, you know, whatever you worship or whatever you believe in, let's cross ourselves, cross right. our fingers mm -hmm. and say, long may that continue. Right. But it does feel that, aside from the occasional blip, that element of travel is, so, we've come so far. Mm -hmm. And that alone is a great piece of progress. So some of these changes and the ways that planes have changed and the way that air travel has changed, how have those led to changes in our behavior? Aaron, we were talking a little bit about this before. What are some of the ways that people are traveling differently as a result of some of these changes? We're traveling more often and we're going longer and for shorter periods of time, right? And that's like a direct result of um, the accessibility and the affordability of the airline industry, as well as other parts of the travel industry. I mean, commuting is easier, hotels are cheaper, a shared economy has definitely factored into enabling us to be in different places for, for different periods of time. Yes, everything is more accessible and, and more people are traveling and, and the culture has definitely had a massive shift that makes it um, more democratized. But that sort of excitement and that sort of specialness that you place on travel, that hasn't changed. Everybody that travels, every trip they take still gets really excited about it. And it's still sort of this thrill and that's 
the best thing, I think, about all of these advances that we've had in 30 years don't, that don't hasn't really think, changed. I think, and also that excitement, people make fun of, I did it for the gram, or you're just traveling to get a great filtered picture of blah. But actually, the ability to share your experience, rather than boring your neighbors and saying, come around for some, you know, some Cherry's Jubilee, a Black Forest Gatto, and a slideshow of our vacation <laughs> photographs. That sounds fun. <laughs> you were just born you. to be yeah. in, like you're like a 1975 person. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I mean, one of the best episodes of Mad Men is the Carousel episode, right? <laughs> Again, sorry to throw. You I off. personally would rather not sit through a slideshow, but I think that sense of sharing your excitement—it's easy to criticize the shallowness of social media, but there's also something lovely about how instant and casual it can be, and you can share a quick picture that people can linger over or it might inspire them. I'm going to fight you on this. Oh. I ain't buying it. Yeah. I was just, I'm going to fight you for two reasons. One, I'm just going like to invoke... Do you like slideshows? Do you I'm like... Go, oh, well, at least you're face-to-face -face with other humans. Oh. I know, I don't like it oh. that much more than you do, but it's a thing. Hopefully they're friends and family, like not just random strangers that you bump into and say, hey, you want to see my pictures? Which is what Facebook is. Um, but that also sounds incredibly dirty. Well, but, I don't know that just means, hello, we've not met. Do you want to see my pictures? I wouldn't say yes to many people. But, but I'll invoke Danny Meyer. And this is in the magazine. His point is that the thrill of discovery has been somewhat diminished by the fact that everything is on Instagram or some other form of social media before you can do it. Now, I just want to say, I just got back from Santorini and the Instagramification of travel was a plague in Santorini. And I mean, there were literally, I don't know what that church is called. Do you know the one that's in Ia mm -hmm. and like you go to mm -hmm. the end of the thing and like, it was like a line at a ride in Disneyland and people were dressed up I mean, like women had put literally on clothes, like like dresses, <laughs> made up their... <laughs> it's Greece. It's not always assumable that they're wearing clothes. You can tell Brad's just back from vacation. Wow. Plenty, <laughs> plenty of beaches are clothing optional. But no, but... Um, Show us your timeline, bro. But, <laughs> uh, but there was a line of people waiting to take a highly staged photo. But, but hang on. can I, I, I love you making that point, and I agree with you. I've not been anywhere that was as congested in tourist terms as Santorini in August. Anywhere in the world. It was like being at Macy's in Herald Square on Black Friday, but the tourism equivalent. And I agree that We've talked about over-tourism a lot. There are destinations now which are trying to find ways, somewhat disingenuously in some cases, Venice, uh, to discourage people from coming. And I think that's a, a very fair point about some places. But I'm not just complaining. But I want to be clear. I'm not just complaining about the number of people, which is bad. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. It's what people are doing. It's literally their behavior is entirely organized around posing for, like dressing for, posing for, and capturing. But what's wrong with that? Why? It's their money. It's their time. They don't see anything around them. They but don't actually do you know? see the destination. Not only that, not only that, but they climb all over every fucking thing in sight to <laughs> get it to the point that, that one of the buildings, literally in, at mm -hmm. that exact location, has a giant scrawl of graffiti on the top of it that says, Stop. Don't go any farther. This is an actual rooftop. 
don't stand on it. Now, but again, you know, Betsy did a great story about a piece of historic uh, of a, a coffin, a coffin yeah. that was ruined by a family putting sure. their child in there for a, a picture. That could have happened in the in the film camera era. It would be less likely to have happened. But again, I'm really wary of prescribing how and why and what people should do when they travel. I think behaving poorly is a universal problem whatever time. I think if you want to go all around Greece and take pictures of yourself looking cute, it's not what I would want to do, but it's your money and your time. I, I th- I'm very wary of sort of imposing my ki- my, I, yeah, my regulations I, of what you should do. I'm not trying to impose other than anything. Polite. I'm not looking for legislation. I'm passing. It, though, I'm you? passing. Uh, I'm passing a, a sort of taste judgment on the whole thing, and I'm not gonna apologize for that, right? Usually, like, I'm the judgmental. I know. I know. But aren't these destinations too pushing back? I mean, I mean, Barcelona and yeah. um, Prague, Venice. Yeah. I mean, they're they're. There are even cities that have outlawed the selfie stick. Mumbai, Bra- no bravi. more selfie sticks. Bravi, like it's it's it's. I mean, whatever. Like yeah, I, that impulse. But I mean, is a but, strange but to thing be to, me. to your point, that is a direct reflection of the behavior that you're describing as being intolerable to these tourism places. Yeah, like, there's a it, reason why they're making regulations. Or it's like cliches. Cliches empty things of meaning, and what happens is that then you empty whatever is happening there of meaning. Like, I'm just, I'm just, just very wary. I am very wary of prescribing how people should experience a place. I think everyone should Falling be respectful. Falling short of them disrespecting I'm something, saying, right? Don't yeah. climb on someone's roof, but if you want to wander around Greece and take gorgeous pictures of yourself and that's what makes you happy, okay. It's not what I would do, but I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with it. I think you're missing out on something, but you're still paying money into the local economy, and if you're being respectful and saying thank you for your, you know, your retina, go to town. Retina. I think it's interesting that some of these destinations we're talking about now weren't even on the radar sort of 30 years ago to transition here. Segway. Um, because we've talked about Berlin, right? But when we look, you know, you guys have this in, in the issue that the Berlin Wall falls in 1989 of November. People weren't thinking of Berlin really as sort of an ultimate destination. And now it's, I think, the second most visited in Europe after Rome, maybe? No, Someone? Santorini. <laughs> or how Santorini oh, fell. Santorini I'm detecting a little bit of dissatisfaction with the Santorini experience. But Berlin Wall. Anyone from Greece tourism, please contact Brad. <laughs> Santorini is lovely, by the way. Part of why it upset me is because it actually is a beautiful place. But you can't see it because you're I waiting agree. in line I, for people to get their dress decolletage just right. <laughs> but I love, I, I think Catherine's point about different destinations, when when Aaron was saying that, you know, the world has been opened up and connected more and we would go to places for a shorter distance that before would have been a once in a lifetime, it would be easy for East Coasters to go to Berlin for the weekend and have a crazy fun weekend. They would neither have gone for a weekend nor probably to Berlin yeah. 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at, I, I mean, places like Iceland, there are, you know, there, there are all sorts of places that come up. And the way that tourism has spread, there aren't just the tourist destinations. It's not you must go to Paris and Rome and London in Europe. You're going to Berlin. You're going to Budapest. Mm -hmm. The Berlin Wall falls. Suddenly, half of Europe is somewhere that 
is easier to explore and you can be a trailblazer. I mean, that's an issue too about how stopover programs have kind of been reinvented, right? It used to be this thing, oh, I have to stop for a long period of time. I have to stop for 12 hours in Reykjavik. I don't want to do that. Now it's a way to see two places in one. Yeah, it's like cramming a mini vacation into your actual vacation, which we think is, I mean, that's awesome. Um, and there are so many airline programs around the world. We have a small bit of it in the in book, but there are so many major carriers that now include that into their itineraries or their ticketing for that very reason. And it's actually a really great way to see different places. Like for example, one of the places we list is flying through Beijing or Shanghai, and you can get you know 96 hours for free in the ground. Whereas if you were to go to China, um, as a separate vacation, you actually would have to pay for a visa, and it's another cost. Oh, and and you can avoid the visa. Moment. So there are actually like little good tips. I, I will say, things Seb, like this. Seb, our colleague Seb, who regular listeners will will know his voice very well, is a huge advocate of this. I would love the ninety six hours. He and I argue about this all the time. I'm terrified I'm going to miss my flight. So even with twelve hours, I just stay oh, so in the airport. Like at the airport. Oh my! I'm, I'm just I'm just staying there. Where so he's like, like, I have enough time for five hours, and I'm going to sit in the hotel for the rest of Seb's the night. Seb's like, oh, I explore. I went for lunch, I met three people, they took me to this amazing club, and then I just went back to the airport and I strolled onto my flight. And I know he's right, and it's just my neurosis, but I think that kind of experience that's, that's, was less. That's a leftover, that's a that's a leftover from your parents dragging you to the blame airport six hours. Yes, like everything, we blame our mothers. <laughs> we mentioned that, you guys mentioned the fall of the Berlin Wall. There are a couple of other geopolitical events that have changed travel in the last 30 years. That's obviously one of the big ones. The other one is September 11th. What are some of the direct things that have resulted from September 11th and how it changed how we travel? Well, security is obviously the yeah. biggest. I mean, like we talked about it's earlier, you can't go to the gate. Friends and family, you know, non-flyers can't go past security. And yeah. the more security got much better. Well, yeah. Before you could just go, you could, people could come with you. You could roam around the airport with, with you know, your entourage in tow. And... Effectively, it created, you know, a, uh, sort of a Berlin Wall, if you will, you know, between the land side, the unsecure side of the airport, and the secure side, and that is this impenetrable barrier that just, you know, means that you have to organize your whole trip around it. And you know, I know that airlines are still telling people, even if you're just taking a one-hour flight to Cleveland or something out of New York, oh, show up at the airport two hours in advance. You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, it's just, but that's the way it is now. It's built into our psyche. So mm -hmm. having to go to the airport now, the stress of, oh, am I going to get stopped at security and, you know, just the whole drill. And, and you know, remember the first years after 9-11, those were very tough because it was just for a lot of people very, very, you know, stressful and emotional. And you'd be pulled off for some reason that you never were told and, and frisked. And it's just, you know, it, it introduced a whole experience into our way of traveling that hadn't existed in the United States. Now, I know it had uh, other parts of the world, and I know Mark has mentioned that about Europe. I think they were more used to, you know, the idea of terrorism on their home turf, but we weren't, so. And cockpits. You couldn't go in cockpits anymore. I remember yeah. doing that when I was a kid, right? My yeah. to a pilot going in there. Oh, yeah, my, yeah. Ask you in. Yeah. my sister, she's got two small children. They live in London and they were just in America. She sent me a photo of her five and her two-year-old going to the cockpit and sitting with the pilot. And my response was, I'm quite sure we cannot do that anymore. <laughs> no. I was shocked. But yeah, I, I'm the same with you, Catherine. I remember that it was like a little thrill. It was like the little thrill yeah, you gave wings. to the children at the end of the flight. And it was, it was, 
I remember, nice that. I remember doing that when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah going and meeting the pilots and seeing mm-hmm. what the cockpit looked like and kind of getting that whole thing. Yeah, and I mean, and now, you know, they've also, they've changed. I, I remember uh, one of the most fascinating speeches I've ever been in the audience for was a veteran pilot talking about the changes and, and everything he's experienced. He said, without doubt, on every single domestic airline, even the small sort of puddle jumpers, there is a gun in the cockpit every time as a result of 9-11, which like kind of terrified me. Yeah. But but Especially I was also like, like, I guess that's good. But well, I'm also I don't like thinking there's a fire. Well, and, and because there was that there was that incident. Where was it where the pilot actually flew the plane into a mountainside? Oh, like, no, uh, in, 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 in Berlin, in yeah. Air Berlin, it was Air an Air Berlin. Berlin flight. And actually, was, sorry to sort of switch a little bit on that, but that, German wings. Oh, that German was, wings. Oh, sorry, it was yeah, the German yeah. wings. Um, excuse me, it was German wings on Air Berlin. Where he locked it. Yeah. He, yeah, and, and yeah, it was that, was, that yeah. was, it was a suicide mission. And that was something that surprised me when Mark was remarking earlier about how in Europe it always used to be that they had hi- tightened, tight security and heightened security and America was more lax. That was an incident. I was living in Europe when that happened. I didn't realize in America had always been the law that even if a, a pilot has to excuse himself to use the bathroom, a, a stewardess has to go in or somebody has to sit with the other pilot. That is the law. And that wasn't the case in Europe. And that's why the man was able to lock the door and fly the plane into the mountain. And they changed that in Europe only after that incident happened. Is that the longstanding law that somebody has to be in the cockpit at all times? It has to be two people in the cockpit? Yes. The two people in the cockpit was always a safety thing because what if a pilot had has heart a heart attack? Right. Exactly. Sure. That yeah, was and, the and the other thing is they have to have oxygen masks too. So, okay. So if at one point during the flight, one of the pilots has to get out, then the other pilot is required to put on the oxygen mask, even if it's just really? a routine flight. Yes. If no you, kidding. You know, just, a- and somebody yeah. has to be yeah. in there with him, a stewardess yes. or whomever else. Yes, okay. exactly. And well, not necessarily the stewardess has to um, be flight with attendant. him. But, um, but flight attendant, <laughs> lady. 30 years ago. Oh, oh, 30 years ago, the stewardess is still But they also have, there's a code which they're supposed to have, which will access only the flight attendant. Now you got me. <laughs> knows how to access access the, the only the crew yeah yeah because the issue is and this has been one thing that's really worried a lot of security experts is that yes the cockpit's supposed to be locked at all times it's secure you know but we know on a longer flight the door will open occasionally you know for breaks and the fear is that a terrorist sitting in the back of the plane could be watching for those moments mm-hmm. and right. be ready to rush the cockpit. Right. And that has happened actually a few times since 9-11. Not here. No, no. Has I it mean, really? No, in Af- there was a flight in Africa. It was uh, over Kenya. And the, somebody rushed the cockpit. And um, But... No, but but don't want to scare anybody because there's always a way, you know, there's layers and layers that are built into this. And you're right. There is now a lot of pilots is under a new program that was introduced after 9-11 called the um, Flight Deck Security Officer Program. It authorizes pilots. They have to get special training, but they can carry a firearm into the cockpit. And that's because there aren't enough air marshals to staff every flight. And so, um, you know, sometimes you could be sitting on a flight. There could be an air marshal. They're armed. There could be two pilots armed. I mean, there are firearms right. on a plane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, those people are 
you know, they're in they, the most com- secure part of the they've brain. Been, they've been vetted. Sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, but the issue of the the but Brad, back to your question, it's partly just for the safety of the flight. Which so this was a long time tradition. Most planes had to have two. But in fact, in before and back in the eighties, which we were talking, it, yeah. there was actually usually three pilots on a lot, mm-hmm. of, a lot of flights. And then the airlines didn't like that because it was more expensive. Yeah. Because you know having, yeah. having to hire that many more pilots and so. more crowded. <laughs> so what build space. That no one got. Gosh. <laughs> they were in. Well, like, actually, pilots Instagramming in is like a whole other topic, though. Yeah. One other thing. So perhaps on a lighter note than all the security issues, the euro in 2002. I'm sure we can all speak to this. I hope we can all speak to this. Traveling to Europe prior to the euro meant accumulating, especially if you went cross borders. But it meant, you know, sort of a more complicated relationship with currency. <laughs> the lira operated at orders of magnitude more than the dollar. So it was like a dollar equaled, I don't know, 1,500 liras or something <laughs> like that. It was kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. So you're constantly doing this more complicated math in your head as to how much things cost. But when the euro came in, it was a much closer relationship. You know, it was like mm-hmm. $1.3 equals the euro. Or it made whatever. more inherent sense. Yeah, you were like, uh, things are a little more expensive. Or and whatever. less opportunities to feel like you're getting kind of ripped off. Yeah, like which in Italy, like, <laughs> not <laughs> Or like, I'm just are. talking like, if you were doing like a Germany to France, Italy trip, you, you know how you always have that moment of like, where should I exchange my money? Right. Like you have that three times or four times yeah. as opposed to the one time. Yeah. Um, and each of the monies were different and had different shapes and different sizes. And yes. so you, you, you're in that cross-border situation and you're sort of like, which one is this? Or even, or you could have just bypassed the actual tender altogether and just gone for the traveler's checks, which we, which are uh, also which is another thing. Yeah. in the past 30 years. And those are gone. And I, not I remember only, that and signing the back and yeah. signing the proof. It's like the you whole ritual. You can use traveler's checks, right? It's but just not it's just like a done. Lost it's a lost a culture. Of, yeah. yeah. It's a lost culture. Not only the traveler's checks themselves, which I certainly took on my first trip abroad, but the commercials for the traveler's checks were, were I like... Oh, Jerry Sa- Wait, here. I don't oh, know. Yeah. I don't know that I... Oh, Carl Malden. Really? Carl Malden did those. <laughs> love Carl Malden. And don't they were ubiquitous. Yeah, 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 don't leave home without them. Um, so those are gone, too. Well, I have I have a question that I'd like to bring up, which is something that came up from time time and time again when we were planning how to shape our coverage, is this concept of the bucket list no longer exists, and we've gotten gone away with the bucket list in the past thirty years. How do you guys feel about that? Do you agree? Disagree? Do you think that concept is still out there, or we've redefined it, or it's obsolete? I think it's redefined. I think it still exists, but it changes really frequently. We haven't talked about that much about the digitization of travel, which I, I don't want to completely neglect. But I do feel like that pace of things that we've been talking about that happens with everything else, the democratization, the availability of not just flights and the mechanics of travel, but also information intel about travel through social media, through the internet, through modes of communication that themselves are much faster causes you to learn new things, discover new things at a much more rapid clip. I feel like most people I know have some sense of the next five to 10 trips that they want to take, but that list is constantly malleable. Like it can change based on new incoming 
you know, some amazing report that somebody brings back from like, oh, I just went to this place mm -hmm. and it was amazing and there was this great restaurant or this this beautiful place or this terrific hotel or whatever. And then suddenly your list gets revised. I feel like that happens much more frequently. Catherine, what do you think? I agree with that. I mean, I think it's, it's more of a, a shifting organism than kind of it was back then. But I think the definition of a bucket list has changed. Yours might be all domestic. Mine might be all international. I don't know. Maybe that doesn't make sense, but maybe we don't think, think about it yeah. as it's a like, bucket it's like list. A subjective it's like a hit list term. Yeah. yeah, hit list is good. Is good. Like, and, and also an app. Hit, but also, nice hit, I, but I think that also is like implicit. Like a hit list sounds like something that's obtainable and you're going to do. Yeah. A bucket list sounds like something that's a, a massive goal that you hope to achieve. And like yeah. it, that actually, in and of itself, is sort of suggestive of how we travel, right? Yeah, but that's an important like distinction said, too, right? Yeah. Like I think that's that's a telling hit distinction. Hit list is what we're going to achieve. Yeah. But I think it's what you said earlier. I mean, if anything, I think the bucket list is just more achievable because travel is easier, right? Like when I think of a bucket list, I think, yeah, these are the ultimate things I want to do, but it's totally possible I'm still going to do them, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, 10, 15 years ago, it would have been much more expensive, much more difficult. In at least in my imagination, there are places that are kind of more important and have a gravitas that mm -hmm. I want to get to, like Africa. Part of this is me as a parent, right? Like I want my son to see certain things, right? But there are just kind of like cultural fulcrums or pivots that I feel like are really important. Like our Tokyo trip this year, I felt like was really a big thing. And it's weird. Maybe I am just thinking about that as a parent because I think of it through sort of his eyes or whatever, mm -hmm. rather more even than my own. I don't know. Do you guys have that same thing? Like are places more important or is it just kind of like a list where all things are equal? No, I think that's actually a really valid point. We actually go into this in, in, in to some degree in the package, which is that there are places that are actually disappearing or changing or shifting, not even just geographically, but also culturally. So you you are more aware of being on a time frame mm -hmm. to achieve it, mm, too. Yeah. And that's kind of something that motivates your travel or where you're going to go. That's a great point. We talk. I think about that in terms of climate change, right? Exactly. Like, we've covered that a lot, that there mm -hmm. are places that are more and more places actually um and this is something i think we need to dig into in coverage more in the coming year right is places where you kind of need to be aware of that timetable if you want to see these places mm -hmm. and the cultural shifts too are are important to think about so that's interesting yeah no i i agree i i think the the phrase bucket list i guess got kind of very tired it's a little cliche. antiquated now <laughs> yeah, yeah. i think yes but it, the it, concepts yes. persist oh, it's just I, been I redefined because so. it is sort of something so basic you know don't you think i mean to, to want to go to some place that that's just totally foreign or you know that you or just maybe because it's there you've never been there and when we were talking earlier about places that have opened up, and you have a really good point, so many more places have opened up because of now the accessibility. But then I remember places that, you know, probably back when this magazine started, seemed more accessible. Um, probably, you know, it's it's sad now to think that there are parts of the world now but that people are really afraid to go to, that I wouldn't have been afraid to go to them, like Egypt. Now, I mean, how many people are going to Egypt now that people are, you know, I mean, I, I sort of want to go now almost because of that. But, and, you know, I know people who are going there in the late 80s and they were flying back and forth between Jerusalem and, and Cairo and well, just like it was New York and Washington. Yeah, well, one and, of the, sorry, sorry to interrupt, mm -hmm. but we did a big outreach to a lot of, sort of travel tastemakers and a lot of them, Francis Ford Coppola amongst other people came back and, and 
you know, listed one of the more memorable trips were Syria and Iraq and mm-hmm. Iran, and these are places that we're just not going to these days. Mm-hmm. I thought that was super poignant. I, mm-hmm. I really that was that was kind of moving with the way Coppola talked about yeah. um, Syria and, yeah. and really mm-hmm. sad. And it makes you, it makes you sad and nostalgic for a place you've never been to, and yeah. it makes you disappointed. Actually, yeah. I mean, not just as a you know, of course, as a, a human, and we've allowed this destruction to happen, but for having missed the opportunity to be able to go to certain places at certain periods. And to see like the cultural patrimony, but this happens in many ways. You know, I I had the experience in in Athens recently of going to the Acropolis Museum. And one of the things that they have there is this reconstruction, kind of like it's not really a reconstruction, but it's sort of a representation of the Parthenon. that's kind of life-size and they have the friezes there. And one of the things that you see um, as you're walking around is how many pieces are actually missing and they tell you where they are today and the location is like the British frequently Museum. like oh, yeah. the British Museum, <laughs> the Louvre, like if you were in Egypt it would be like the Met, you know, and, and so like there's a sense in which um, there are many different forms of of that kind of disappearing culture, I suppose. And it's not like it's disappeared. And I'm sure there are all kinds of, you know, obviously there are all kinds of historical reasons for that. But it did feel a little bit to me like um, there was a piece of the, the cultural history, kind of the legacy sort of missing for not just for visitors, of course, which isn't the most important piece, but for, you know, Greeks themselves, you know, that's their patrimony. Sure, it's their so legacy. Yeah, it's their legacy. And it's, and it's kind of gone. And there's a different version of that happening in Syria. There's a different version of that happening in other parts of the world. But um, but it does make you it does make you um, sort of like pillaging cultures. Yeah, it does make you think about that as, as a, a, the disappearance of those things as, as a part of our own shared human, you know, cultural history, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, maybe that's it. Huh. Um, that's like there's a lot more that we could talk about in the last. We could do years. a part two. Yeah, yeah. we could do mm-hmm. a part two. Um, maybe we will. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll wait for the next thirty years. Yeah, and we'll all still be around. Flying cars. Yeah, that we won't be doing podcasts. We'll be doing direct beaming into your cortex. <laughs> yeah, Branson um, might have landed on the moon by then, or the the inter- Virgin know. Galactic may have really yeah. taken yeah. off by then. Yeah. So. I'll be like, remember Virgin Atlantic? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have the hyper... Remember the, the Earth? Yeah, the We're all on Mars. <laughs> remember the Earth? Elon Musk. The Hyperloop. That yes, was such yes. a Model T. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, I do want to mention one other thing that we've because there is one area where we've really taken a step back since this magazine is there, which is Concord. You know, I mean, uh, I was, yeah. we could go. They're going to reintroduce look, look it. I've my heard. Heard. Yeah. The story of the Concord. What is the story of the Concord? <laughs> okay, well, how long do we have? <laughs> okay, the executive summary is just that it was a great thing. It was a supersonic plane, flew it twice the sp- speed of sound um, so that's you know uh, Mach what Mach terrifies two, uh, me how many and, miles per hour is that yeah that's more like say oh, well over a thousand um, over a thousand yeah, miles I mean, an hour. I mean typical commercial aircraft is like 600 miles per hour at yeah. cruising you know speed right so it also flew twice almost twice as high as a regular commercial so it'd be outside so of it, the it, yeah, stratosphere exactly you yeah. could see the curvature of the earth from it that it's is like 70, terrible that is like that 
that is before that, yeah. it's time. I oh, mean, I feel wonderful. like we'll get there, but we weren't there when we got there. You know what I mean? Well, like, it was amazing. Unfortunately, only four teams were built. Only British Airways and Air France actually yeah. flew it. Um, Boeing was supposed to build one, and but then it ran into all these objections from you know the countries that it would overfly. You know, so and I flew it once. <laughs> the noise. Right? Okay, Where did so you, what was your been, route? Where did you go? Um, London to New York. And how long did it take you? Uh, three hours. And I have some to people's say, commute from Harlem is that long. Even if I walked here, it would take me an hour and a half. So I don't know who you're talking about. Yes, but on the subway, it takes three hours. <laughs> Touche, fair point. Yeah, it was great. For a while, well, I don't know if I should say this. Okay, you can delete go this ahead. Right. For a while, they were joking that it was called the Condé Nast shuttle. During the because it also went to Paris, remember? Oh. And during certain Condé Nast, we're leaving that in. We're, we're going to lead with that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're moving that to the head. Well, I mean, you know, if you cover fashion, you have to be able to fly to Paris you know, quickly. And fashion didn't change as fast back then, though. <laughs> Didn't, didn't change as fast as well, no. Anyway, it was great. They charged about the same fare that, say, MGM Grand did, you know, but with the, without the private bedroom. <laughs> Back to MGM That's Grand so again. Nice. And the other thing, it was, it was very narrow. It was a narrow plane because, you know, because to make it work aerodynamically, it, had to, it was really not a comfortable it, plane. It, it looks tightly. weird. I saw yeah. one, they had one um, just like in London. Well, yeah, sitting, isn't there yeah. one at the Intrepid too? I think. I don't know, yeah. but they had one just I with all the old retired I mean, planes, BA planes. Yeah, unfortunately for me, being the age I'm at, the first I ever really heard of the Concorde was that horrific oh, crash they had it. in Paris. And stop it! No, I'm serious. It's just like it, the, yeah. the Concorde has a very negative connotation mm. in my mind. But I do speak to people a lot who are like. So you it know, was the dream nostalgic once upon a time. for well, the Concord to come back. It was just back nothing and, like it being able to just you know you'd be, leave New York and you'd be in London. Yeah, my aunt yeah, used yeah. to fly it for business, and she's like, it was fantastic. But I just, to me, it's a it's mm-hmm. it's very well, negatively connotated. And the other thing was just the whole culture of the people. Who sure, it was just chic. A, yeah, and and people literally we talk about people showing up twenty minutes before their flight. People would show up literally five minutes before the flight, and and you know just they would just waltz right through you know, and it was people like you'd always see celebrities on it. You know, the, when I was on it, I guess I was sitting right behind David Frost, and um, he was ordering the. You saffron. have to explain who David Frost is. <laughs> okay, he to was see a the well- movie. <laughs> yeah, Frost <laughs> Nixon. Nixon. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. David Frost, yeah. a famous television personality, and uh, you know he's. But uh, he flew it almost every other week, and he was so well known on it that he ordered the staff around like it was his private. So I mean, it was that kind of. I mean, look, it was just, it was just an incredible experience. Barbara's longing for the Concorde. We can tell. But if Seb were here, he would say it's coming back. Yeah, well, I I said there are there are reports that that it is coming back. Yeah. Maybe that's an interesting thing to throw out to you guys. Like, what do you think is coming in the next thirty years? Or 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 other fun thing is, what are we doing today that's going to disappear over the next thirty years? Please say Instagram. Yeah. Instagram will disappear because like that, I mean, I'm not saying. Tweet us, I, let us know. <laughs> yeah. Don't Instagram us. Don't Instagram, Instagram. Instagram. <laughs> us. Um, what? Supersonic travel. That's I, coming but back. I reckon, yeah, but potentially. But I also reckon that there is going to be um, sort of 
class specific airplanes. I think like that gap of like the Ryanairs versus your Concords or your La Compagnie or however you yeah. want to define it actually MGM might get Grand more defined and, yeah. and the price points are going to vary and vary and vary. And I think like that spectrum could potentially grow. Great. More inequality. One. That's awesome. Well, segmentation. That's working. Is, you know, yeah, like the I, I, I do. I mean, that you know, does sound yeah. quite yeah. negative, but like I don't actually yeah. see it as negative, but it does sound negative. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just I think I it's about like, choice. I, I, agree I think, with you, yeah, yeah, maybe that's yeah. a more diplomatic way of phrasing it. <laughs> Better choice for your well, budget. Well, like Lock Company is a great example. I mean, yeah. that's, a, that's a unique, it's, you know, it's, it's all a successful model and it's all business class. Yeah. No, I love that. I mean, uh, but I also like the idea that too there would be a flying bus that you could just walk onto. Like the, there's already you know, a flying bus. It's called like whatever the, the, the thing. <laughs> yeah. wow, the yeah. thing below premium, like economy, basic like what economy. Is, basic, basic economy, yeah. right? Like that's what happens is you just gets more Lord of the Flies. Well, I think one thing that might happen. Though, back to the bus analogy, that was back when the, in the days when there was a Trump shuttle. We get the name again. People really would want that particular service because it was a turnaround service. You know, take off from New York, you know, land in Washington, unload, pick up the next group, go back, and like the it's Times. It's so Square funny shuttle. that it went yeah. to Washington. <laughs> it's so funny that it was yeah. New York, Washington. Yeah. How handy would that be for him right now? Yeah. But the beauty of it was people really would not even buy tickets in advance. You show up at the airport, you know, you, sometimes you pay on the plane, that kind of thing. I would love to see a return to that. And I think we could see that in some of these shorter markets, you know, that people are getting more, you know, accustomed to the idea that, yeah, we can have the service. It's not going to be dangerous and insecure. Yeah, we can do, make but do you think the security measures are going to accommodate that? I think they're improving to the point where it will be possible. Yeah. I mean, the pre-check and all of that. I mean, you'd have a, the people who would fly that kind of shuttle service would be pre-check people. I mean, I mean that's it, sort of the next step from your Ryanairs and your EasyJets, right? Mm-hmm. Is like, I don't have to pre-buy a ticket. I can just sort of make the decision that I want to go do this. This weekend, I'm going to head to the airport. I'm going to grab a ticket. I'm going to get like the ferry services in in Europe, right? Like mm-hmm. yeah, train travel I or mean, train travel, exactly, right? Like, yeah, sure, you can even do that here. Mm-hmm. Okay, so thanks to all of you guys for showing up and talking. Thanks to Mark who has departed. He's got things to attend to. Twenty eight years, I think he made it through. We'll give him credit for the full thirty. Um, subscribe to the podcast. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. Please visit us at cntraveler.com. We are at Condé Nast Traveler on Facebook and YouTube and CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. Snapchat. We're still doing that. Yep. Okay. For another week or two. Um, please do tweet at us. We love to get the feedback. Tell us what your water is. Tell us what you have noticed has changed in the last 30 years of travel or the last five years or 10 years or whatever. And tell us too if you have thoughts about what's coming next, because we'd love to hear about that. Um, And any experiences that you've had with some of the things we talked about today, that would be great for us to know. And we have, in fact, in the past and in the future, in fact, next week's podcast, I think, is built around a a user request, a reader request. So we will build you your very own podcast if your tweet is awesome enough. That raises the bar. And uh, do send us feedback and reviews on iTunes. Um, Where can people reach you, Catherine? So I'm on Twitter at KJ LaGrave, L-A-G-R-A-V-E. And frame your tweet as a question. What is KJ LaGrave? Is that no, it? no. I'm oh, talking yeah. to the readers, that, oh, or yeah. the listeners. <laughs> yes, frame it as a question, But please. she does always respond better, everything in Jeopardy form. That's so. true, yeah. <laughs> Aaron? 
Um, I met Aaron underscore Florio, F-L-O-R-I-O, on Instagram. Barbara? Um, at Peterson B, P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N-B. Okay. I'm at Bradrick. Have a great weekend, everyone. Happy 30th anniversary, Traveler. Bye.